Michael Crummy is an award-winning poet, short story writer, author of the best-selling River Thieves, and most recently, The Wreckage. Welcome to the Bibliophile. Great to be here. What characterizes your work, the novels at least, is the fact that they've taken place, they took place in the past. I'd like to focus our interview on that aspect of writing a novel, the, the historical novel, by starting off with a quote from Larry Matthews. He's a, a prof at Memorial and a, a literary critic. It's from a short essay that he wrote sort of introducing Newfoundland writing in which he talks about Wayne Johnston's The Colony of Unrequited Dreams. I'll just read this here. Hence, what to outsiders may seem an obsessive concern of certain Newfoundland commentators regarding factual and historical accuracy. At the micro level, this concern manifests itself as a gleeful or sorrowful cataloging of errors in the geography of St. John's. For example... My son currently attends Bishop Field Elementary School, a building whose earlier incarnation as Bishop Field College is the school that Smallwood, Joey Smallwood, attends in the novel. Quote, a Tudor-style brick building at the corner of Kings Road and Colonial Street. There is no such corner. Kings Road and Colonial Street run more or less parallel, flanking the school building and yard. Johnson knows this as well as I do. There is, however, certain symbolic resonance in the conjunction of kings and colonial, the alternative to identify the school's location as Bond Street would be reductive artistically, though more accurate at the banal level of literal fact. My question is, a lot of historical biography, factual biography, is wonderful. It's page-turning, it's... Why, in your novel, The River Thieves, why would you turn to fiction to tell the story of the... Beothic. The, the annihilation of them, the disappearance of right. them. The red Indian mm -hmm. from that. I guess part of the role of historical fiction, and I, I mean, I'm not comfortable with historical fiction, I've never wanted to write historical fiction, because I always thought of it as bad writing, generally. It tended to be... Until recently, the only historical fiction I'd come across tended to be fairly wooden and meant to, you know, I mean, it was mostly stories about the Navy and things like that from 200 years ago. And I think what I'm interested in doing is taking the bare facts of historical events, particular historical events, and trying to, to make those people in those events feel real. And... The only way to do that is to fictionalize. And I think that good historical biography does the same thing. I think they couch it in different language. And I think there's a lot more uh, qualifiers in there. A conjecture and... Uh, sure, they could he have may this. have been. Yeah. But as soon as you start trying to imagine what historical characters thought or felt as opposed to talking about what they did or didn't do, you've moved into the realm of fiction. And... I think what good fiction does is creates an imagined world that feels as real or sometimes more real or and, and authentic as, as the real world. 
I think the concern is, of course, if I want to learn about what happened in Newfoundland with the Red Indians, I'm much more likely to go, and I want to go, to a work of non-fiction. Right. And that's fair enough. I don't have any defense for that. You know, I'm not interested in writing history. You're interested in a fascinating story that you can tell. Yeah. I mean, well, and I don't want to overstate that, because the reason I'm interested in that story to begin with is because it's part of my history. You know, I grew up in the interior of Newfoundland, right beside Red Indian Lake. We had a cabin on the lake when I was a kid. That story of the Beothic was always around me, and that's why it's always fascinated me. So in that sense, I'm interested in the actual history. But when I'm sitting down to write, I'm interested in creating a, a story, and a story that's going to hold a reader. What I wanted to do in that book in particular was, there was a spine of historical truth, historical fact, that I didn't want to mess with. The book is divided into three sections. In each section, there's a trip down the, the river exploits to Red Indian Lake. And those are based as closely as I could make them on historical fact. And I made up my mind at the start that I was not going to mess with those expeditions. And that becomes kind of the skeleton of the book that the fictional flesh hangs off of then. But I also knew that I didn't want to write a book about the Beothic. Because uh, there have been a number of books written from the perspective of the Beothic where a writer is trying to imagine what they were experiencing, how they felt about what was happening to them. And to me that has always felt completely beside the point. We don't know what they felt. And we'll never know. And trying to guess is kind of slightly offensive to me. You know, it's, it feels like one more thing we can do to them is to, mm -hmm. you know, sit here and think... The white man basically sure. saying what the red man... What these people went through was their own experience, and there's no way now for any of us to ever look inside it. To know the, the pain and the suffering. and the Or whatever it was. I mean, again, it feels like something we're forced to stand outside of completely. And um, that's part of what extinction means, I think. What I decided to do instead was to have the Beothic, to have them on the margins of the novel. So they really only just appear in the, in the shadows most of the time. And that's how they were to the Europeans who were settling Newfoundland at the time. That's how they've been in the history, really. So I decided to focus instead on a fictional story involving some of those European characters. But were the characters, the, the Paytons, were they... Uh, they were based they were, on real characters. Right. And yes. The, and the differing view of the father and the son, was that sort of a documented difference? Yes, it was, very much so. The father being sort of persecuting the red... He was a bit of a son of a bitch when it came to the Beothic, yeah, and didn't seem to really see them as fully human. And the son was involved in almost every attempt to establish some kind of friendly contact with them when it became apparent that they were on the verge of extinction. That split existed within Newfoundland society uh, in general, so it seemed like a very interesting place to start. And the father-son dynamic was a very interesting one to me. So what I did was created a fictional story that created a fictional reason for some of those differences between the men. That, that could only be conjecture. Absolutely. We don't know sure. what motivated both. And we have no idea. Right. So again, and I think that's part of what historical fiction tries to do, is to create an authentic something that feels authentic, an emotional world that feels authentic to a modern reader. You mine both your personal history and the history of where you grew up for interesting questions. Sure. I mean, which then you would answer through 
research and your own imagination. Yeah, just making stuff up, really. Uh, but I wanted the fictional story to mirror, in some ways, the emotional, the emotional reality of what was happening in the margins as well. And that's part of the reason that, that the fictional story, the little soap opera, as I call it, that goes on in the book, is so dark and why none of those characters ever manages to make real emotional connection with any of the other characters around them. Because the whole story of the Beothic and the European settlers really is one about miscommunication, mm -hmm. failure to connect. There are two solitudes, if you want to call Sure, it. and about people making assumptions about another person or group of people that turn out to be completely false, but by, then, by the time they find out that, discover that it's too late. Just in a, sorry, in a way that a historian might make assumptions that could be completely inaccurate. Sure. But I suppose it's, it's often the weight of their argument that determines whether or not their history stands the test of time. Yeah, I, I suppose so. For me, that's why the fiction was necessary. You know, like the, the history is so incomplete and so fraught with these kinds of difficulties anyway that to me in some ways writing a fictional story about it is more honest than trying to write uh, a complete story that claiming it some kind of truth. I mean, uh, it's so full of holes that you can only just sort of gesture towards it really mm. without fictionalizing. And yet, if I'm reading the book and there's a lot of information about Native Indians and the history surrounding them and their relationship with the Europeans. If it's not all accurate, I'm going to get uptight. I'm going to think, you know, okay, this is a work of fiction, but I'd like to kill two birds with one stone. And I don't want to be second-guessing the facts. Right. Well, that's, to me, that seems like a fairly ridiculous way to approach a book of fiction because it's like taking, I don't know, Margaret Atwood's latest book and saying, well, uh, am I going to go down the street in Toronto and run into these people? And if I don't, does that make this book less real? But, mm. You know, am I being thrown off by this book? Because that's not what fiction is about. No, right? but, but I mean, the fact is you've chosen this topic. Uh, and I've chosen to call it a novel and say that yeah. it's fiction. So yeah. for anyone to come to that. Unlike that uh, brouhaha over a million little pieces or right. whatever it was. And, and you so. know what's interesting about that is that he tried to publish it as a novel. Apparently so. And, no and they said... Out. It yeah. won't sell. Yeah. Let's call it a memoir. So what is the guy supposed to do? I mean, I think he I mean, he's, he made his bed and he's lying in it, but he was pushed there. He's also lying in a very lovely bed. Sure. I think he's a multimillionaire. Yeah, yeah. But that's a really interesting example. As soon as something is called historical, even if you call it historical fiction, then automatically people are coming to it assuming that it's this is the way things were. Mm -hmm. And in many ways, I wanted that to be the case. You know, I wanted it to have a sense of authenticity about it. So I tried as much as possible to have people live the way they lived at the time, you know, mm -hmm. I, and for that world to be a real world. I think it's a question of uh, any kind of great fiction. You, you want that, that authenticity, that sure. believability sure. to tell your story yeah. within. But, I mean, one of the things I say in the note at the end of the book is that anybody who has even a passing knowledge of the reality of what happened between the Beothic and European settlers knows that this stuff is made, there's made up stuff in here. And nobody should come to the book thinking otherwise. 
they have different jobs, I think. History and historical fiction are different things. I do think, though, that there's a... And I, I, again, it comes back to authenticity, I think. There's a, a way to write about, to write fictionally about real events and real people in the real world that is respectful, and there's a way to do it that is exploitative. You know, I mean, there was a book written, supposedly set in Newfoundland, by an American writer, and I'm not talking about the shipping news, which I loved. I thought it was a great book. Mm -hmm. uh, but it was a, uh, another book that was supposedly set in a small outport at the beginning of the the 20th century, 1910 or something like that. And I've never been so infuriated by a book in my life. The writer just kind of thought, well, this is an interesting place to set a book, but had no interest in the reality of the place or the reality of the lives of the people he was supposedly writing about. And all of the characters in the book spend their free time at the local restaurant. I mean, this is at an, an outport in Newfoundland in 1910. I mean, people yeah, barely were able to feed themselves. You're right? falling into the same trap as the guy that expects to see people in Margaret Atwood. Not at all. I mean, if you've read a Margaret Atwood book where people were going down the street in Toronto in uh, 2002 on air-powered scooters, you'd say, oh, come on. What are you mm. talking about? And that's exactly what I was doing with this book. Mm. Every page, I was going, oh, come on. And it felt completely disrespectful to the reality of the lives that those people survived. This author right. then, as you say, placed it using names? Yeah, it was set in specific. a it was set oh, in okay. a specific yeah. Newfoundland airport. Yeah. I mean, again, the specificity of that doesn't bother me. It was the fact that he didn't care to know how those people really lived. So it was laziness on his part, or as you say, the exploitative... Yeah, it just seemed like it was disrespectful somehow to those people's lives. Now, I want to quote you again, going back to this, uh, this article by Larry uh, Matthews, speaking with Michael Crummy, who is an award-winning Canadian poet and novelist. One of your most, well, Newfoundland's most famous exports is a national broadcaster, Rex Murphy, who has a, a great wit and uh, incisive judgment when it comes to politics. And he reviewed this book by uh, Wayne Johnson, and uh, Murphy's message to his national audience in the form of a review was that Johnston missed the mark badly. It is only with the real historical Joey Smallwood that the story, the fable, of the colony of unrequited dreams can oblige a serious engagement, Murphy wrote. And as far as he was concerned, a reader is free to feel a disappointment if the original is within reach of memory and experience and the created version is less persuasive or compelling or present. Johnston responded vigorously. His purpose, he wrote, was not to pursue the kind of truth pursued by biographers and historians. My intention in writing Colony of Unquieted Dreams was to fashion out of the formless infinitude of facts about Smallwood and Newfoundland a story, a novel, a work of art that would express a felt emotional truth that adherence to an often untrustworthy and inevitably incomplete historical record would have made impossible. It was written not just for Newfoundlanders or Canadians, but for people who are willing to approach books with open minds and open hearts, and then truth in quotation marks. Sounds good to me. <laughs> I mean, I, I think he's saying there's some of the same things I was saying yeah. about the role of fiction as opposed to the role of history or, or reporting. Or Don DeLillo says that uh, what he's interested in, I mean, he, I think he got a lot of the same flack for um, 
his book about the Kennedy assassination. Is that Lieber? Yeah, mm. Lieber. And he said in the afterword to that book that what he's interested in is the, uh, I don't know, I won't get the quote right, but the uh, rich, complex weave of actual experience. And that's what he's trying to recreate on the page. Fiction is the best place to do that. It's the best way to do that. I mean, just a list of facts or a list of actual events or whatever uh, comes across pretty dead. And that's why I think biographers and really good history writers do so much fictionalizing. It's because they're trying to make the world feel real. They're trying to mm. recreate a living world on the page. That's what happens in historical fiction, I think, or in good historical fiction. Yeah, I just wonder, again, if it's the marketability that is the def- what determines how the writer would then go about packaging their fascination with a particular character in history or an event in history. You mean in, in terms of historical fiction being what's selling right now? Oh, yeah, like uh, the choice between, you know, we talked about Frayne, I think his name was, right? Right. Going with uh, a novel and his publisher saying that's not going to sell. Right. It seems to me that's probably one of the determining factors behind whether or not, one of them anyway, that an author would do a fictionalized account of Samuel Pepys. Because there was a, that, that was an award-winning, uh, a, a wonderful biography. Right, by, right. Uh, Townlin, I think, and Aunt Claire. You know, why do that versus turn it into a you know, his, historical fiction? Why not? Right. You know. right. What about you, particularly? Have you ever did you did you go through that sort of line of thinking, or never? No, never. I mean, I was writing for a long time before I wrote River Thieves, and I mean, marketability was just not an issue that ever reared its head. You know, like I was. Writing poetry, for freak's sake. It's <laughs> um, a tough sell. Yeah. And I had never had an idea for a novel before I decided to try and write River Thieves. And I don't even, I don't know why that story kind of stepped forward. Mm. It was waking up one day and thinking, I think there's a novel in this. In this. And I'd never had a notion before of wanting to try to write a novel. So it was a, it was, it, there's a, a lovely, rich complexity to your novel, but to, also to that particular bit of history. Sure. I mean, I think before before River Thieves, I used to say to people, you know, I've had all kinds of ideas for stories, but 10, 12 pages. And yeah, after and that, you, like, I would be bored to death. Yeah. So, but in there, I felt like there was a lot more to work with and a lot more. And I think that may have been part of the reason the historical thing appealed to me is because there was a ready-made story in some ways, mm-hmm. right? There was. Well, that, a, I mean, look at Shakespeare. Sure, he stole a lot of his plots, right? I mean, and and that really did appeal to me because I, I don't I don't think I knew how to create a story that would span that much time, you know, and, and hold a reader for 250 or 300 or 350 pages. So it provided a really a nice, as you say, a sort of a backbone or a skeleton. Sure, yeah. And, I mean, I had no idea what I was doing. And I started writing the book without without knowing what the story was. I just knew that there were some interesting questions there. And that was a stupid way to go about it. And I really bogged down a lot of times. But always at the root, then, I had this historical framework to go back to and to think this has to happen at this point, and this mm. has to happen at this point, and this has to happen at the end. It's almost like a critical path sort of thing. Yeah, so it was, it was a way of having something to write towards even when I didn't have a clue what the story was. Isn't that interesting? So, 
uh, I certainly did not want to write another historical novel after that because I was afraid of being tagged, you know. Mm -hmm. Just like uh, James Meek, who wrote this great novel on uh, Russia, very concerned about not being pegged. Sure. Why would you be concerned about that? I mean, it was just my own personal fears of... I, as I said, wasn't a big fan of historical fiction myself. I've written tons of stuff that uh, has no connection to historical fiction at all, you know? So I didn't want to, to be pigeonholed, I guess. But when I was thinking about another book, I was just waiting for a story that, again, would, that would give rise to the same impulse in, in me. Because it's an unnatural act, writing a novel. And there are lots of places in the middle of it where you feel like, I don't want to do this. I, I want to... To hell with it, you know? And the story has to keep you going through that. Wanting to tell the story has to keep you going through that. So, um, when I was starting to think about another novel, it was another historical story, or mostly historical. I mean, the, the last third of that book takes place in much more contemporary time. But it was a family story that uh, got me started on the book. The Wreckage. The Wreckage. By Michael Cronin. Yeah. The only thing I wanted really at the outset with the wreckage was to write a book that was completely different from River of the Thieves and how it felt and the kind of story it told and I, I just w wanted it to be a totally different experience. Is it the First or Second World War? Second World War. Second World War. Yeah. And I, I should mention I, I read about the first 50 or 60 pages and it really was a wonderful page turner right. to that point. That, that, that brings up another point to, just in terms of judging a book, you use this lovely romance, this, this young man, uh, Roman Catholic, pursuing an, a much, an even younger Protestant girl, a, wild, a bit of a wild young woman. Did you use the sort of a historical backbone in this? Because it starts off beautifully too, really interesting in the Pacific theater. And then suddenly, bang, it goes goes back, was there a woman, and then bang, you're back to Newfoundland. Right. There, there were a number of different things that came together for that book. As I said, it started with a family story. I had an uncle who went overseas during the Second World War, who had a sweetheart here in St. John's before he left. And uh, she was told shortly after he went overseas that he'd been killed. Uh, went off, you know, like you would, and married somebody else and had a family and raised a family and uh, 50 years later they, they ran into each other and I always thought that was a great start to a book but uh, I didn't really know what the, the hook was for me I didn't know what the story was and in, in many ways uh, this book for me was a, uh, my response to September 11th and everything that happened afterwards I was really interested in the way that we divide the world up into us and them camps uh, and have been more and more recently and uh, what it does to point to another person or a group of people and uh, say that, that that's where evil lives in the world and what does that do to us yeah, you to have, do that you have one of the Roman Catholic priests uh, say exactly that, that sure. evil resides in the Lutheran right, church right. well and the whole book everybody in the book does that eventually they they point to one person or a group of people and decide, and decide that that's where evil lives in the world. And then, of course, there are all sorts of consequences for ourselves when we, when we do that kind of thing. But, um, I mean, the, my uncle's story is a fairly simple one. But obviously deep, profound, human one. Well, my, I was talking to my editor about it. So she gave me a book that uh, 
they had just published called Testaments of Honor, which was first-hand accounts by Canadian vets of the Second World War. And I came across a story in there of a guy who'd been taken prisoner in Hong Kong. And he talked about one particular Japanese soldier who was incredibly sadistic towards the Canadians, hated the Canadians. And the reason he hated them was because he'd grown up in British Columbia. And as soon as I read that, I knew that I wanted that in the book. And that's when the, the romance became a Roman Catholic Protestant of payback almost this, this sure yeah I mean obviously had been uh, eye for an eye treated as an outsider and probably lots worse and decided the, that in response to that you know he had a chance to get his own back and he bloody well was going to do it so my biggest problem then of course was that uh, there were no Newfoundlanders in the Pacific theater as far as I knew they were all in the Atlantic well, they all died in the Atlantic, didn't they? Those yeah, all of them were yeah. decimated. Well, that, World that War One. Yeah, War. yeah, that was. I mean, World War Two had a different impact on Newfoundland altogether because, in some ways, it was the best of times. You know, there was an incredible amount of money that came into Newfoundland with the American military and the Canadian military. It was like the 20th century finally arriving in Newfoundland in many ways. The big base in Argentia. Huge base in Argentia, base in St. John's, base in Gander, base in Stephenville, base in Happy Valley Goose Bay. There were huge movie stars and entertainers from the States who came through during the war. Frank Sinatra was here. What, just to entertain the troops? To entertain the troops. Uh, there was music every night of the week, dances at three or four clubs around town. Um, there were hundreds of women, actually, who ended up leaving Newfoundland with marrying American uh, servicemen. Well, there's so many beautiful women in Newfoundland. Yeah, it's true. Still. And Christopher Pratt talks about the uh, the psychological impact of, of growing up with that, you know, of seeing all of the women in in Newfoundland. Just seeing them with these American soldiers who were taller, had better teeth, were healthier, had more money than all of the Newfoundland but anyway, to get back to this Newfoundlanders in the Pacific thing, yeah. I was thinking I had no idea how to get past this. And that very, that same week, I was just flipping through stations on the television, and on CBC it was a promo for a show coming up next. It was the story of the last living Canadian to be present at the dropping of an atomic bomb, and a little clip of the guy talking. And as soon as he opened his mouth, I knew he was a Newfoundlander. And he had joined the British Army instead of the Newfoundland Regiment because it paid better and ended up in Singapore and then ended up in a Japanese POW camp. So there's my guy. So there there were these big pieces, you know, that uh, were in place. And then I had to to try and create a story that threaded those together. So you combine your sort of native land's history and mythology as well as your own personal family history Maybe there isn't anything particularly different than from what you're doing with this sort of historical look to what any other novelist might do in terms yeah. of looking places. Looking, like Martin Amos once said that a lot of his best stuff comes out from from out of the tabloids. Right. Yeah, I don't think there is any difference. The only difference is, I think, that as soon as you say historical fiction, people come to it with a different expectation and a mistaken expectation. An expectation of perhaps being informed. Well, of being given facts, Yeah. right? And, um, I mean, I like to think that there's a lot uh, uh, in River Thieves that people can learn about the Beothic. Well, and again, that, that would, as I say, it's almost like 
as a as a consumer of of fiction and, and nonfiction, but you, you do. I think there is this element of wanting to kill two birds with one stone. It's but then the, I think that it's a dangerous. It's a, it's a fraud yeah. place, right? Yeah. I, I was really keen not to mislead people. I didn't put anything in there that that was obviously insupportable. You didn't change any of those street names. Oh, sure I did, yeah. I mean, <laughs> the Beothic woman who plays the largest part in the book is kind of a conflation of two Beothic women who were taken captive by the Paytons and lived in their house. So that woman is neither of the two women who were captured. She's mm. sort of a combination of both. So there's all kinds of things like that. Even the expeditions that I said I wouldn't screw with, you know, like I put the younger Peyton on that first expedition and he was still in England historically. But for the arc of the novel, for the arc of the narrative to work, he had to be there. I put him on there, but I wouldn't allow his presence to change any of what happened on those expeditions in terms of the kind of interaction that happened between the Beothic and those those white men who were on the expedition. You know what's so interesting is uh, just turning then to the present. I was recently at the this wonderful new facility in uh, St. John's called the Rooms. Right. Uh, those rooms, uh, this lovely big red-roofed, pointed-roofed structure right beside this monstrous church. It's nice to see the secular competing with the religious up on the hill there. Uh, but it combines the museum, the archives, and the, the art gallery all together. But going into the museum, you do see the last Beotuk woman. Uh, she was taken to St. John's, I guess, and then died or, right. uh, there. Could you perhaps tell us a bit about... You're now the writer-in-residence at The Rooms. Uh, I had a, a chunk of time when I was invited to come in and and do some work there. I'm part of a group, actually, that have been invited to do that. I was the writer, I guess, but uh, it included three or four visual artists, and also Andy Jones, who's uh, an actor, comedian, writer, brilliant guy, who was one of the founders of COGCO. I think what they were looking for were ways to have all those three institutions who ex have existed for years as completely separate mm -hmm. institutions and are now under the same roof, uh, to find ways for those three institutions to collaborate on a project. And so we were invited in to just, we had free reign to poke through their collections and look for stuff that interested us and to respond to it in some way. And whatever we've come up with will be part of an exhibition that opens uh, July 14th and runs until October. Fourth or fifth. Two weeks today. away and uh, yeah, and there's still plenty to be done to get that <laughs> up and running. So so we cut this a little bit of panic then. setting in, yeah. For me, it was it was really right up my alley because it was. Uh, Had you spent time at the museum anyway, researching? Sure, the, yeah, I spent quite a bit of time in, in the archives and the museum for both of the novels, which I think may have been part of the reason they were interested in asking me to come in. So were you able to come across a historical nugget that stimulated you to produce a? Yeah, I, I basically I had to stop looking because there was so much stuff in there. I have too much for the space that they're allotting me for the exhibitions. What, what exactly? I've written a bunch of things. Some of them are more like poems, some are little narratives, some are adaptations of official documents. I found a, something they call an indecipherable crossover letter. At that time in Newfoundland, it was about 1831, the letter was written, I think. There wasn't a lot of paper and people wrote crossover letters. So if they got a letter from somebody 
they would just turn it 90 degrees and write a response this way across the letter, right across the top of the old letter. And flip it back in the mail. And flip it back in the mail. And I think probably at the time, the new ink was much more legible than the old ink, and that's how you could read it. But now, of course, the inks are exactly the same, and the handwriting is barely legible anyway, so... Maybe they had the same school school teacher. It's quite possible, so it's just a, a beautiful little document so I, I spent an afternoon trying to decipher as much as I could and have mucked something together with the dozen or so phrases that I got out of it so that will be framed and either hung on the wall or hung directly from the ceiling because it's on both sides so I'd like people to be able to walk around it and then what I've come up with will be up there somewhere as well either behind it or beside it now all of it fictionalized then yeah, I found a bunch of photographs, about nine photographs that I wanted to work with. And in each case, what I did was I just had one of one of the people in the photograph speak and tell a story about either what's happening in the photograph or something about their lives that was suggested to me by their expression or the clothes they were wearing or where they were. And that's really what my part of the exhibition will be. Mostly I was looking for things that spoke to me in a way, where I heard somebody speaking and then trying to create a, a story or something with that voice. What a great concept. You're being paid, basically, to go and do, your, do the kind of research for your, your next two or three novels. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And that's part of what I've been doing, you know, as I've been up there. Um, mm-hmm. Because uh, I am going to write another historical novel. <laughs> <laughs> Not that you're a historical novelist, Not that I know. No, no. no. But... Um, <laughs> Uh, any uh, any uh, uh, ideas? Are you willing to share any of that? Or no, well, it's kind of formless at the moment. And yeah. part of what I wanted to do was to get into the archives to look for stuff that piqued my interest. Again, um, specific to Newfoundland? Or yes, absolutely, yeah. yeah you're yeah. not leaving the, leaving the rock then? Yeah, no. I mean, I, I got asked a lot when I was touring with the wreckage if I'd ever consider writing a book not set in Newfoundland. And I thought about it, you know. I thought, well... My response was, yeah, sure I could, but why would I? It would require that much more research. Here there's just quite a certain amount of intrinsic, innate sure. knowledge that you have. Why? Well, yeah, Newfoundland is what made me, you know, and then mm-hmm. everything starts there for me, you know. And it's interesting, I don't, I doubt if anybody from Toronto ever gets asked that question. Have you ever considered setting a novel not set in Toronto? Because that's considered the norm in a way. You know, mm-hmm. that's the real world, and Newfoundland is kind of this exotic and eccentric weird well, place and why would you it's an interesting place to visit but why would you stay there yes but it's also being used as a uh, one of the reasons why there's so much interesting stuff coming out of here and other sure, places like sure. Tasmania and yeah. places on the periphery that are exotic eventually the more familiar that becomes the less exotic it becomes mm-hmm. the less people will be interested and I mean that's coming. I know that, right? Publishing is a faddish business. Newfoundland's hot right now. That's not going to last. But still, Newfoundland is what interests me. It's like uh, the real power of the novel it would transcend it, I would think. Well, you know, the hope best so. novels transcend the, uh, the locale. Yeah, uh, but at the same time, I mean, it's, it is all about taste and what's in fashion. Mm-hmm. We're only about 10, 15 years from the time when Bernice Morgan was told that nobody outside Newfoundland would want to read a novel about Newfoundland. I don't have any illusions that we're not going to end up back there again sometime. I like to think that the writers who have been lucky enough to gain a national audience during this time will continue to have one. And international. Sure. 
the publishers will not always be down here beating the bushes mm -hmm. to find the next Newfoundland writer. So it's kind of a little golden age right now, it feels like, in Newfoundland for the arts, and for writing in particular. So it's a, it's a good time to be at it. Well, thanks very much for sharing your uh, historical and current perspective on it. My pleasure. I've been speaking with Michael Crummy. He is an award-winning poet and novelist. His most recent novel is called The Wreckage, published by Doubleday Canada.